pandemic has had a profound effect on many industries and organizations, including nonprofits. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Joining me this week to talk about the ripple effects of a pandemic on nonprofits and the work her organization is doing to help them rebound is Danielle Holly. She's the CEO of Common Impact. The organization helps nonprofits grow to achieve greater success in the communities they serve by connecting them with corporate experts. Danielle, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So you are a native New Yorker with parents from Queens and Manhattan. So first things first, let me ask you this question. Yankees or Mets? Oh, Mets all the way. <laughs> so you're siding more with your Queens side of the family, huh? Well, yes. And we grew up very much a Mets family. Uh, now we actually have my sister just married a Yankees fan, which was a big controversy. So um, it's, it's, been a, it's been a tough life, Mets fan. <laughs> But we, we take it. We take it. So what's the mission of Common Impact? So Common Impact's mission is to channel the talents and skills and expertise of the private sector companies that are dormant in our office buildings and channel them towards social impact and nonprofit capacity building. Nonprofits typically spend less than 2% of their budgets, very, very small slice of funds on basic infrastructure building, the marketing, operations, technology, HR, strategic planning, all of the things that we know help build businesses. There are very little, um, very little funds for nonprofits to spend on that. So we get corporate employees who have those superpowers of all shapes and stripes into organizations in pro bono work. That being said, what has the pandemic meant to nonprofits? How big of an impact has it had on them? It's such a significant impact on nonprofits, but in different ways. There are, were some nonprofits that were the frontline responders who lost their volunteer workforce and their resources as demand for their work went up. So food pantries and domestic violence shelters and homeless shelters all in the you know March, April, May timeframe when we were really in the heat of the initial pandemic needed to do far more with far less. And then there are other organizations that had to completely shut their doors. The, the arts and culture organizations, the educational organizations who hadn't yet figured out how to move into a virtual environment and were trying to operate with schools that were just placed into a, a limbo. And so now what nonprofits are dealing with as we are coming out and recovering from this is a recalibration of their resources, their funding, and what they need to do moving forward. How well prepared was your own organization for the pandemic and going to a remote environment? You know, I consider Common Impact pretty lucky. We, our programs, the building of databases for nonprofits or the building of strategic plans, that's work that translates pretty well to a virtual environment. So it wasn't seamless by any stretch, right? We had to figure out how to move our entire operations and our entire programs to a virtual environment. And so much of our feel good and our engagement happens from being in person, developing relationships, but operationally it was pretty smooth. And actually a lot of companies were looking for new and different ways to engage their volunteers in a virtual capacity, and we were able to provide a solution for that. So I count uh, Common Impact as one of the lucky nonprofits for the past year. What are some of the specific things you're doing right now to help nonprofits rebound? 
So we're really focused on crisis resiliency, recognizing that this crisis, even in six months, a year, will not be over. And there are plenty of services that nonprofits are going to need to need to provide, particularly mental health services and thinking about compensating for the loss of a year's worth of education for some students, the, the lack of telehealth services for some communities and populations that nonprofits are going to need to provide. And so we're trying to figure out how we can support them and their infrastructure and their delivery to make sure that they, one, don't shut their doors, that they have the funding and the infrastructure and the support that they need to stay open and provide those services, but also that they are figuring out how to reemerge from this crisis in a at least stronger way. A couple of years ago, Common Impact released a report titled Disaster Response from Relief to Resiliency. What were among the main takeaways there and what were among the things in there that perhaps would have really helped organizations had they read this report beforehand? One of the key headlines for me as I was doing some of the research for this report is that there is so little attention and funding directed towards disaster and crisis resilience and mitigation. You see companies and individuals and volunteers coming out in force after the disaster happens, right after the hurricane hit, after the forest fire starts, but not beforehand, even when you can predict something like hurricane season or the fire season on the West Coast right now, right? Highly predictable events and only 2% of philanthropy was going towards nonprofits equipping themselves for that. And so one of the things that we dug into in that report, which you can find on our website, commonimpact.org is a mandate to shift that investment, right? To think about building infrastructure so that organizations, when they're hit with a crisis, like a, a global pandemic or the racial reckoning that we saw in 2020, that they are able to operate and sustain within that crisis environment. So what are among the steps companies can take to prepare? The first is to business continuity is one of the fastest growing departments at businesses, right? Companies are starting to think about every day, how do they steal their own businesses against threats like climate change and another global pandemic and changing employee dynamics and the social issues and advocacy that employees are asking companies to do. They're thinking about what are the different directions our business can take if X, Y, or Z happens. And that is exactly the skill set that nonprofits need and don't have and can't fund. And so supporting their nonprofit partners in developing those continuity plans and thinking about risk and helping them quantify that is one of the key things that companies can do. And then thinking about redirecting some of the funds that are earmarked for disaster when disaster strikes to actually give that to organizations in advance of what is now a pretty predictable um, stream of crises, for better or worse. We are relying on technology now, perhaps more than ever, to keep the wheels turning. I would imagine that a substantial focus needs to be making sure that technology is not going to fail you. That's right. That's right. And technology has been woefully under-resourced in the nonprofit sector. And there's a, there's a different world. We are going back 
not into the world that we came from pre-2020. We are going back into a much more digital environment where virtual and digital skills are going to be not just helpful, but critical to receiving services, to looking at new employment opportunities, to engaging with the world. And companies, particularly tech companies and large Fortune 500 and 100 companies that have large tech departments have these resources in spades, can think differently about how they're giving not just money, but in-kind product donation, and that matched with the skill set to nonprofits that they're working with or could be working with. How important are partnerships? Oh, they're so important. And actually, I think that is one of the silver linings that came out of this past year, that I saw companies, and I've been in this work for almost two decades, I saw companies thinking about partnerships in new and different ways, in releasing some of the grant restrictions that they had, in relying more on their nonprofit partners as the experts versus the recipient of funding, and having more of a mutually beneficial and mutually reciprocal relationship. And I hope that sustains, right? I mean, I saw some of the largest companies that we work with that tend to say, okay, if you want this number of funds, you have to do A, B, and C for it. Just said, you know what, you know what to do <laughs> and uh, let nonprofits really guide them and thought about skills and expertise versus uh, funding as a part of that equation. What is your advice for finding the right partner? What should you be thinking about strategically there? So it, it's hard, but I'd say calling your own networks and understanding the culture of the organizations that you're partnering with is incredibly important because on paper a partnership can look great but if particularly when it's a corporate and nonprofit or any sort of cross-sector partnership there tend to be inherent power dynamics that exist within those partnerships right where a large company operating with a small nonprofit the large company typically calls the shots and if a nonprofit can walk into those conversations knowing what they need, knowing what they want, and understanding how it ties to their mission and strategic vision, then it's much more possible. It opens up the doors to that partnership being truly meaningful versus just being a gateway to potential funding that they do you know, X, Y, and Z for to get even if they don't need it. Who would you say are the trusted voices when disaster strikes? Who should nonprofits be listening to? So there are a couple of organizations in this space that I have a lot of respect for. The Center for Disaster Philanthropy is the largest. They have a ton of research, a ton of resources, and they are the organization to go to if a, a disaster strikes and nonprofits and companies are thinking about how do I, how do I handle this? Uh, and then from there, it's really sector specific. There are a lot of organizations within localities and municipalities. The Human Services Council is one in New York that understands the capacity and the infrastructure side of crisis and disaster response and resiliency and can direct you appropriately. Um, 
And then cities usually have, New York City is actually great at this, has Department of Emergency Management that can allow you to understand who your peers are in this sector and what is already being done from a policy and a funding perspective to support organizations that are facing crisis, either immediate or long-term. I want to rewind a little bit and talk more about what your organization is doing to support nonprofits in fighting racism. Can you talk more about your efforts there? So Common Impact was founded with a mission to build the capacity of nonprofits that specifically alleviate inequality. So that has always been a part of our mission. And over the past couple of years had a real realization, this was before 2020 and, and the how that was racial inequity was on full blast in 2020 as the pandemic was in full swing as well. Um, but we realized that racial inequality really undergirded almost every other dimension of inequality and it was at the root of so many of the systemic challenges we see if we didn't prioritize that we were missing a chance to really direct and strengthen the organizations that would then have a multiplying effect on that impact and really educate corporate employees, right, who tend to be in a position of privilege and tend to be shielded from some of the issues that these organizations, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, People of Color-led organizations or racial justice organizations see every day and just know and live and breathe. And it's incredibly helpful for folks that aren't necessarily as naturally exposed to that to just get a glimpse, right, and be educated and then pass that on within their companies and within their families and neighborhoods, the uh, credible power of education outside of even the actual project work that's done in the engagements. The COVID-19 pandemic, of course, has disproportionately impacted communities of color. What would you say are among the biggest failures there and the biggest lessons? So the really just laid bare the fault lines that were already there in our society. One of the largest failures has been a lack of focus on digital inclusion and bridging the digital divide. About 30% of Black communities do not have the broadband and hardware that they need to access now basic human services. Uh, they are also that those are also the communities that are on the front lines that are our grocery workers, our food delivery, our nurses, the folks that are most exposed and have the biggest risk for not going to work. So they are riding the subways and they are continuing their jobs, even though they know that they are putting their families at risk and themselves at risk by doing that. And that's we were talking a little bit earlier about the ultimate mental toll of this. There's certainly been a physical and health toll and a disproportionate number of BIPOC community members who have uh, contracted and died from COVID-19 versus the general population. But even after we come out of this, just the mental health toll that we're gonna see in those communities is incredibly damaging uh, for uh, more broadly as well. But particularly for those communities. And it's just, that's, that's, I really think where we need to focus as 
a nonprofit sector with corporate philanthropy on making sure that we are are focused on what's being called right now a K-shaped recovery, right? Where we expect that organizations, companies, people of privilege will will accelerate out of this crisis once the health risk is gone. And BIPOC communities, if left untended to, which is likely and is historically true, will continue to feel the effects of the crisis for years to come. Looking back over the years, have there been any crises that you think that we learned most from, that there were lessons from there, and perhaps you can see those lessons playing out now? One of the crises we didn't learn from, I was actually just reading Barack Obama's new book, Like Everyone Else in the Universe, um, and he was he was describing the government's approach to the H1N1 virus and how quickly that could have become a much broader pandemic like the one that we're seeing today. And because of a few smart and strategic steps that not only our administration took here in the United States, but globally and collaboratively were taken to stop that pandemic from happening, those are steps we did not take this time around, right? And this virus was uh, more lethal, it was more contagious, so we're not rewriting history here, but there are some structural and policy elements that need to be taken and in collaboration that weren't. I think that's just a broader statement around to your question, why partnerships are so important, right? We can't all act as individual governments and individual businesses and individual nonprofits. We need to understand our place in the ecosystem and at least be open to collaboration and saying what we're good at and what we're not good at and figuring out how to work together, which I know sounds Pollyanna, but it really is. It's something that we didn't do um, this time around and was done better last time. How do you define leadership, Danielle? I think of leadership as service. It's very much the space that I'm in, but really understanding the bigger picture and how you can help inform it as a leader. Leadership is not about the leader. It is about the people that are being led and really hearing and understanding their points of view and understanding how they can come together collectively. Getting to what I was just talking about in terms of why partnership is so important and why I said it's Pollyanna, right? And it's, it sounds right. And it, it also sounds a lot easier than it actually is. And it's, those large institutional partnerships are made up of individual people and actors. And as a leader, if you can figure out how to rally people and connect with people to bring them under a common vision, then to me, that's true leadership. What road led you to Common Impact? So I I started my career, I graduated from Fordham right after September 11th. And um, there was a... Um, there was a complete media blackout. That's the, I was headed towards a career in journalism, media journalism. I had a sweet gig at ABC News and then the entire world shut down. And so I found myself in financial services at the New York Stock Exchange actually. And I was exposed to the real belly of the beast and how decisions were being made and how the massive amounts, amounts of money was moving through the systems and the markets. And then because I was 23 year old and I didn't have 
toddlers and I had a ton of <laughs> disposable time that I would now kill for. Uh, I was working with nonprofits in the evening, something that I would now call skilled volunteerism. I didn't call it that at the time. And it just got me hooked on this idea of there's gotta be a better way to share our resources and to give people this perspective. You know, I saw hundreds of millions of dollars moving through the markets and then I was going to this basement apartment of a nonprofit where they couldn't string together 500 bucks to hire a proper bookkeeper so they had me coming you know nine o'clock at night so uh, it, it just put the fire in my belly and then I hopped up to Boston to business school and common impact was in its I think seventh year in its life at the time and was just figuring out its place in the world and its positioning and the rest is history. What would you say has been your greatest takeaway in the time that you've been with Common Impact? The story that sticks with you most perhaps? That people can change their minds. That um, we really, for the most part, come to our lives and our work with great intentions and our experiences can really change us. And one of my favorite moments still in the 13 years I've been at Common Impact, a little more now as wild, uh, is these kickoff meetings, right? Where corporate employees are meeting nonprofit executives for the first time and they're learning from each other and they're realizing, yeah, we wear different clothes to work and we do different things at work and we care about different things day to day, but actually we're pretty similar and our kids go to school together and maybe we actually don't care about different things. We care about the same things. They just look a little different on the surface. And that to me is fundamentally what helps change the world. I know I get, you know, it sounds a little Pollyanna, but it's so true. And those are such meaningful interactions. And we could, my team would kill me for saying this, but we could stop our work there and still meet our mission, right? Like we don't even have to build the database. We just have to connect the people and expose folks to each other and to different experiences and ways of life. What are some of the things we all can do every day to help improve the world? Think about what you want to bring to the table, right? Think about the skills or the things that you do easily that don't come easily to others. The things that people always say, oh, you know, you're so good at X, Y, and Z. How do you do that? You do that so naturally. Think about what those things are for you and how that could be channeled for society, for helping a neighbor or a friend, for supporting a nonprofit, for integrating into your day-to-day -day work. Because when we're doing what we are best at, and we are thinking about that skill in service of others, that's what changes the world. I know one thing you have suggested people do is talk to your racist uncle, huh? <laughs> Indeed, right. To not let those moments pass you by because they're uncomfortable to when you're at the dinner table with people you love and they're saying something that you know doesn't align with their values or you know is a an experience or a perspective that pushes against the anti-racist culture that you're trying to build. Say it out loud, say it from a place of compassion, say it from a place of this is your behavior, not this is who you are, and bring awareness to that and education to that. It's so important and we so often let those opportunities slide by so that we remain comfortable. Is there a quote or a motto that you live by, Danielle? My favorite quote of all time, and I think about it every day, is Eleanor Roosevelt's, do one thing every day that scares you. 
for that exact reason, for, for a constant pushing of yourself and questioning your comfort and whether that's really serving you. So I try to do one thing every day that scares me. Have you done that one thing yet today? No, I haven't. You're making me think. <laughs> I've got my work cut out for me. <laughs> when you watch events unfold on TV, let's take an event like the breach of the U.S. Capitol building back in January. What goes through your mind in terms of what if, in terms of preparedness? Yeah, that was such a predictable event. Maybe not to the extent that it unfolded, but similar to hurricane season uh, in uh, the Caribbean, similar to the wildfire season on the West Coast. We knew that there was going to be turmoil associated with that event. And we didn't equip our, we didn't equip the capital to deal with it. And that's where I think a general mind shift needs to be, and resource shift needs to be made to really make sure that the reality of that is that we're meeting that before it unfolds and that we are valuing people's lives and livelihood and mental health more than we are right now. And that's an example of where, you know, anyone could have predicted that that would unfold, maybe not in the way that it did, but to some degree. Any thoughts on what the future of New York City might look like post-pandemic for nonprofits, for corporations? I think we're going to be in a, uh, we're going to be in a tough space for a little while with the nonprofit sector and coming back to New York. I am a lifelong New Yorker. I know that New York is going to be resilient and we're going to bounce back. You know, the folks that say everyone fled New York forever. I don't think that for a moment, everyone's already starting to come back, but no, we have an enormous population here. We have an enormous uh, nonprofit sector and we were hit pretty hard. And we also have an incredible intent to give and volunteer and we have an incredible private sector, robust private sector here. We need to make sure that we are working together to rebuild the organizations that keep New York running. There are some amazing stories um, where close partners and friends with the folks over at New York Cares who organized the large coat drives and volunteer events, and they saw an incredible uptick in the heat of the pandemic for folks wanting to volunteer, right? When it wasn't even it, it didn't feel safe for many people. There was still this incredible intent to volunteer and to give and to serve. We need to figure out how to tap into that. New Yorkers are not nearly as, as gnarly as people give them credit for. They're really um, philanthropically minded and community minded folks. And we've just got to figure out how to channel that. Would you say there is going to be a need going forward for perhaps a different type of nonprofit to continue to meet the needs of a post-pandemic world? I think we're going to need more nonprofits that are focused on the specific needs of BIPOC-led nonprofit organizations, of smaller organizations, community-focused organizations. So much of the capacity building infrastructure and foundation dollars go to brand name nonprofits. I think we're going to need some organizations that help shed light on that larger part of our sector. Uh, 
And then I think we're going to need much more, we're going to need more mental health services, ongoing mental health services, not the traditional that we see where you're either a privileged person who is able to seek an expensive therapist or someone who is in crisis and can go seek urgent care or go to the ER, but all of the challenges that exist in between those two places, right, and organizations that support um, spotting mental health crises before they happen. What are among the things that have been getting you through this past year? My team at Common Impact, so resilient, so amazing. Uh, it's been just fantastic to watch up close and personal how folks have figured out how to stay connected. I have a ton of folks who have kids and animals and all this stuff happening in their working lives in the background of their Zoom calls and figure out how to get it done and make sure that they're tending to their own personal health and needs and family needs um, have figured out and supported me in translating our operations into a virtual environment have been strategic enough to take a step back and say, how are we going to how are we gonna reinvent ourselves on the other side of this? You know, we could go back to our quote unquote normal, but we shouldn't. There's this is an opportunity for innovation and reinvention. So that has been a ton of fun. And then I, you know, end the day with my two little ones bursting through the door, um, throwing stuff and yelling and humbling me every moment. <laughs> so that's been a fun part and an inspiring part of my day. And finally, is there a song that you utilize to motivate yourself or would encourage people to listen to? So speaking of toddlers, the only music I listen to these days are usually Disney soundtracks um, and have recently been doing a couple of cathartic Let It Go from the Frozen soundtrack <laughs> in the kitchen while kitchen dancing with the two little ones. You know what? Yesterday is gone. Uh, tomorrow is upon us. Let's let's do it. Great. Danielle, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to be here. Danielle Holly is the CEO of Common Impact. More information at commonimpact.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Thanks so much for listening.